Investors Chronicle. Companies and Market Show. It is Thursday, the 23rd of June, as we record. Coming up on the show today, DS Smith is our result of the week. Gemma Slingo calling in to talk through them. We've got Alex Newman talking about his big feature this week, lessons from VCs. And finally, we take a look at Ocado, Tesco and other food retailers. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the show, listener. We've got Dan Jones hosting Alex Newman, Mark Robinson, Gemma Slingo and Madeline Taylor coming up in just a moment. But first, our roundup from the week that has been. More gloomy inflation figures this week. A fresh 40-year high for the UK. Figures for May's CPI at 9.1%. Sterling plunged on the news but has since somewhat recovered. Uh, Meanwhile, in the US, Fed Chair Jay Powell warned that a recession is, quote, certainly a possibility. Elsewhere, energy market regulator offset new policy proposals aimed at preventing a recurrence of supplier failures seen in recent months. Ofgem have recently been slammed by the National Audit Office, who said they allowed a market to develop that was vulnerable to large shocks. Airline cancellations show no sign of slowing down in the near future, with EasyJet most recently cancelling thousands of flights amid continued staff shortages. And on Monday, Heathrow Airport asked airlines to cancel 10% of their flights amid a baggage backlog. Ocado has raised £578 million to continue the expansion of the robotic grocery business. 72 million shares were offered at 795p a share, with buyers including institutional investors, capital and Bailey Giff. More on Ocado later in the show. Following the $1 billion plus in fines levied by the US over corrupt practices, A UK court has convicted mining and trading giant Glencore of similar offences. The Serious Fraud Office said on Tuesday that Glencore, quote, had been convicted on all charges of bribery. The booming buy now, pay later business is to be subject to increased oversight from the UK Treasury. In a statement on Monday, the Treasury indicated plans to introduce rules forcing providers to carry out the same eligibility checks as other lenders and ensure the rates being levied on customers are affordable. A short trading update from gambling company 888 said that sales are broadly in line with board expectations and that it will enter into a new borrowing agreement to fund the acquisition of the non-US business of William Hill. And finally, Mike Ashley's Frasers has upped its stake in suiting giant Hugo Boss to 31% from around 25, with the total holding now worth £770 million. Thanks, John. Joining us today are Ideas Editor Alex Newman, Companies Editor Mark Robinson and Companies Writers Gemma Slingo and Maddie Taylor. We're going to talk a bit about Ocado and retail spending and discuss our cover feature on lessons to learn from high growth investors. But we start this week in the exciting world of cardboard boxes, which uh, have in fact become somewhat more exciting over the past few years. This is another sector at the epicentre of shifting macro trends. You've got tough comparators from recent years as some of those pandemic e-commerce tailwinds fade. You've got big increases in input costs and questions of how to pass those on. And now, of course, you've got a very uncertain consumer demand picture as well. We uh, Our result of the week is DS Smith. On that note, uh, Gemma, you wrote up these results. You analysed the uh, the latest numbers from uh, from them. What's what's the sort of general feeling out there on uh, from their point of view and from our point of view too? 
I think they were surprisingly good actually, um, sort of given the current macroeconomic backdrop. Um, so shares in packaging companies haven't been doing very well since about the start of the year, because as you mentioned, they're so exposed to, to external pressures like energy costs and problems with raw materials, particularly something called recycled container board, which is basically the main ingredient in cardboard boxes. But contrary to expectations, DS Smith's actually done really well. So it said demand was still very strong and it managed to increase its pre-tax profits by 64%, which isn't bad going given a lot of the pressure it's under. And to give a scale of the challenges it's facing, input costs increased by £1.2 billion in 2022, which is quite hefty even for, for a big company. But it managed to offset that basically by increasing how many boxes it sold and sort of hiking up the prices of those it did sell. So, yeah, quite a positive picture. I think the thing that uh, pleased some investors as well, in particular, you know, the the outlook, you know, the guidance is what people are looking at right now. And as you say, it does still is still predicting two to four percent volume growth over the next year, which is seems pretty creditable. That, that question about e-commerce, there were some interesting things in the results about that sort of breakdown, perhaps, of where they're seeing growth and where they're seeing peaks as well. Yeah, so e-commerce doesn't actually contribute a huge amount to, to DS Smith's um, revenue stream because a lot of what it deals with is fast-moving consumer goods. But it did it did mention in its section about the UK that e-commerce isn't as strong as in the early stages of the pandemic. So... Presumably, that's not going to have a great read across for the rest of the sector if online shopping starting to tail off. So I think in many ways, that's where a lot of the, the money was coming from in the sense that um, with e-commerce, you can be more imaginative with the style of packaging you use and charge more for um, for sort of clever uses of design to help transport maybe fragile objects. But that doesn't seem to be as strong as it was, say, this time last year. And again, if you're looking at online retailers and thinking what that means for them, it's probably not a really, really positive sign. Yeah, I think it was sort of, to me, it was notable as well that they're, you know, as you say, it's a, a relatively small part of their business proportionally to uh, some others. But, you know, in Europe, actually, we're still holding up quite well and that growth was still continuing, whereas for now, at least in the UK, it seems to have peaked and maybe we're all a bit more getting back to the into the old swing of things over here. Um, the US was a particularly strong uh, sort of contributor as well, um, which I suppose you'd expect given the way their economy has been, well, until quite recently doing uh, going pretty well. But I mean, what, what do we, what do we sense do we get of their kind of US plans, their US scope and how that can contribute to the bottom line? Yeah, so the US seems to be quite an exciting area for the company and it's stressed quite heavily in its results how well it was doing so it's got this new plant in Indiana um, which seems to be driving a lot of the growth and returns on sales is strongest in the US compared with its other markets so it seems to be a place to watch over the next few years. The question as you know over here as well is how much that that kind of pent up demand. So I think they did say as well that you know it's actually labour shortages were one of the biggest impediments to even higher growth rates. But you know whether now they're getting that labour on board at just the time when that growth starts to starts to peak a little bit. But that's not for us to uh, uh, to forecast. I suppose we we'd all want to know the answer to that. Mark, Alex, do you have any particular thoughts on DS Smith? I know it's a a company which can fly under the radar. 
I don't I don't have any um, particular thoughts on DS Smith, but just to the uh, your point uh, earlier that we we have seen a, a, we have demand for uh, online commerce has trailed off slightly in the United Kingdom, but we should reiterate the point that was from that was from a, a spike in the market as well. I think the the direction of travel is well established, and I think you know volumes will gradually increase um, for the foreseeable future. Anyway, uh, there's another. Uh, aspect that uh, you touched upon briefly as well, and that's um, that's linked to ESG considerations too. That's another that's another uh, area that packages are uh, having to take on board uh, going forward. It's um, it's not exactly a, a, you would imagine from their business perspective, the expansion of e-commerce is is favourable over the long run, but it does entail some. Uh, near-term capital investment as well, because as Gemma said, there's uh, th- there's uh, technological developments in packaging uh, to reduce sort of the sort of damage in, in transit. That's that's one area as well. But they're also trying to reduce the amount of energy that goes into the production uh, of specialist packaging, and also its wider effects on the environment, including water usage as well. So you imagine that packages themselves uh, will be on the hook for um, increased capital cost in the year to come, or the years to come. But I think it's set fair in terms of that online demand. It seems to have struck a decent balance between, you know, I think there is some more capex uh, coming in next year, and you know, paying down debt at the same time, and um, you know, returning some money as well. So as as you said, Gemma, fairly creditable performance. How how does that sort of compare with? You know, the peers, you know, um, Mondi, I suppose, Smurfit Kappa as well, things like that. How do you see it sitting in that in that group? I think Mondi is quite an interesting company to compare it to because obviously it's another packaging giant, but it has not been having a good year at all because it's been very exposed to Russia. I think it's around eight, an eighth of its revenue comes from Russia, but I'll double check that. Um, and obviously, given the, the geopolitical situation that's become of untenable and it's now looking to divest its Russian assets. At the moment, it's quite hard to see what effect that's having on its financial performance, but the sentiment seems to be that it's not going to be great. So you wonder if, in a way, one competitor is struggling, whether DS Smith and perhaps Perfect Kappa will sort of be able to pick up the slack a bit and um, and profit where, where a rival's struggling. But it seems across the sector market sentiment isn't great just because there seems so many worries that they won't be able to continue to to offset the cost pressure really. I suppose it's an interesting dynamic between those three as well in the context of something I think you've mentioned before when we did our FTSE 350 review it is still quite a fragmented sector in Europe and obviously it was only a couple of years ago that Mondi was rumoured to be interesting in DS Smith I mean that you know it's got bigger things on its plate now as you say but that is always something I suppose to watch out for with these companies as well, as with any company at the moment, that, that potential uh, M&A activity. Yeah, and this I spoke to seem to think there might be, yeah, a few takeovers on the cards as we go forward, but we'll have to see, I suppose. Yeah, there's, there's some da- dangers involved with that as well, because um, uh, a former constituent in the sector, RPC, uh, they came unstuck to a certain degree because of uh, their uh, M&A activities in a short space of time. So, you know, from an investment perspective, that's one thing that uh, that uh, our readers have to take on board. Well, let's 
Let's move on from the uh, the staid world of boxes to the uh, the exciting, or at least hitherto exciting and uh, uh, fast-moving world of uh, high-growth investment and venture capital. Our cover story this week, uh, written by Alex, is looking at the lessons that one can learn from venture capitalists, from their mindset, perhaps not from their near-term performance, because obviously things have gone... Uh, um, the the context has changed somewhat in the last few months for, for early stage investment, but I think it's fair to say, and this is the, the thrust of the piece, that you know the the lessons endure uh, regardless of of you know the performance of certain companies in the short term and the way that market sentiment has shifted. So, Alex, do you want to just talk through what what your kind of thoughts were? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, maybe that is a place to start with. Um, is the headlines about venture capital at the moment? are all focusing on how bad their returns currently are, or put another way, how bad their the returns might be if they were forced to disclose the actual valuations of of the companies in their portfolios, which, um, you know, for, for listeners who need a catch-up, um, has really been turbocharged by a huge amount of, of private money, uh, of money for private investment sloshing around in the last few years, which is you know racked up the valuations particularly of technology firms um uh before they even you know see a glimpse of public markets so that's that's the story that is obviously dominating vc at the moment um but what one is to do with the piece basically is, is sort of look beyond that and kind of almost take a contrarian view on what's going on in that in in the world of private investing now and and highlight why really over the long term there are some very important lessons which investors can apply from from a kind of venture capital investing mindset to their own portfolios and investing in general um so i mean i won't go into all of the lessons but i mean a couple i think it maybe is worth picking out i mean first maybe most importantly you know the most important insight of, of vc investing is 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 basically the point that innovation is greater than incrementalism and um, you know, we can probably get philosophical about where where the line is between those two concepts, because you know, a, a business focused on efficiency over a generation will make changes which look like an innovation. But but really, I mean, when we talk about innovation, we're focusing on companies where which create enormous value and these zeitgeist like shifts, and that's often at the moment led by technology. Um, and in business, a lot of that value does accrue to a handful of companies um, that that do that innovation best or manage to capture that in- innovation most successfully. So, you know, if you look back to the last sort of 40 years, you know, you've got IBM when it came to the rise of computing, Microsoft when it adapted that into the world of personal computing, and then perhaps Apple when, when it came to merging that revolution with smartphone technologies. Um, and those three companies alone, they're three of the five greatest value generating companies in the US market in the last 80 years. And, you know, together with with two other companies, which might not be so associated with innovation at the moment, General Electric and Exxon Mobil, that five, that cohort of five companies account, account has accounted for about a tenth of all the value generated by more than 25,000 listed um, US stocks over an 80 year period. So it it really does accrue to um, value. Really does accrue within you know the, the companies that are focused on you know on long term game changing technologies and innovations. Um, 
And that's just in public markets. So what is often happening at a smaller scale is a lot more impactful and dramatic, you know, given that's the, the really the, the, the realm of, of new idea gener- generation. And you've got the other point where large bureau- bureaucratic corporates as well may not always be the best at fostering innovation um, or have certain biases where they want to cling on to, you know, structural markets or the status quo. Um, you know, the, the second lesson I, I just very briefly pull out is, is the limits of forecasting. Um, of course, I mean, so much of what we write about in the magazine is about the, you know, the value of numbers. Um, and I really don't want to downplay the importance of financial metrics and, and you know, cash flows and, and profit and loss accounts and balance sheets, because that really is the, the bread and butter of how you value a company or try and understand its growth and the marketplace in which it is, it is based. But um, when you're dealing with breakout technologies, I mean, you're talking about early stage companies, the commercialization stage of an idea it can often be a, a bit of a roll of the dice. So, you know, you might have another competitor which just just beats you to to all the, you know, the juicy contracts and, and just gets ahead of you. Uh, it might be that an idea is before its time. Um, it might be an idea or technology that large companies can replicate successfully in-house. So it's, it's a really high-risk um, trade, really high-risk area of investing, but the potential reward is exposure to, you know, the kind of hockey stick um, graph growth where sales double every year and you know you make you know they vc investors talk about 10x 100x 500x returns um rather than you know the single digit um incremental growth just to return to the first point that that we often focus on as uh, as 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 public markets investors um so yeah yeah that's th- those are two of the two of the lessons i, I think um and i suppose in terms of how the private investor can access these opportunities, a variety of ways. I mean, you could, in the one classic way, you know, spread your bets quite thinly over a small group of companies, knowing that, you know, nine, frankly, are probably going to fail and one might come off, which, you know, comes with its own challenges and comes with its own uh, requirements in terms of, you know, the disposable cash you need to do that. Yeah. But but obviously there are other routes as well. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I mean, I suppose the most basic one might be an over-allocation to technology, that's been a very, very painful trade over the last year. But over the long term, you know, technology um, companies of the sort of last 20 years have, have, have or particularly the last 10 years, have done very, very well. Um, I mean, for UK investors, there are a few ways into venture capital or early stage uh, um, companies, companies which might not have, have listed yet. Um, one we highlighted in the, in the piece is Molten Ventures, the, the uh, it, it, they're an investment trust, but they're also a PLC uh, in the FTSE 250. They're formerly known as Draper Esprit. And they own stakes in around 70 private European fintechs and tech firms. Um, they were an early backer of Trustpilot, Kazoo and UEPath, which, all of which debuted in the last year. And I mean, all those stocks have done quite badly since they listed, but um, you know they got in long before uh, an IPO was, was on the cards. So they're able to... To, to capitalize on a lot of the you know that valuation um uh, uh upside uh and then and then there's the vct um uh the venture capital trust uh route um where you know it's important to make a couple of points on this but the the, the first important thing to note is um 
if you if you invest in this, in VCTs in the secondary market, you don't get this upfront tax um, income tax relief that comes with primary issuance um, or new new VCT. Uh, basically, when when new VCTs are, are, are launched, um, and second is that they can be quite illiquid as well. Um, so that, that's that's an issue. And then, if but if you want to participate in a, in, in a VCT launch. Um, you know there are a few obstacles there. It might need to be that you are advised if you're gonna if you're gonna participate in the launch. You may need to qualify as a sophisticated or high net worth individual in the first place, um, uh, uh, and the minimum stakes can be prohibitively prohibitively expensive for for some investors. So, yeah, it's all about striking that balance between what you use VCT for, um, and uh, I mean. Mary McDougall's written a huge amount about, about this in the personal finance section over the over the last year because there's obviously been an explosion in VCT listings, um, uh, you know, in in the last year and a half. So yeah, those those are a few of the ways you can uh, you can get in. Um, not all of them, but um, a few to highlight. Yeah, I, I think we we do see with as you make that point with the VCT interest. Uh, you know, it used to be that VCT season was the first quarter of the calendar year. Now, a lot of the time, a lot of VCTs are closed already because the demand has been yeah. so strong. I mean, there's a there's a few different reasons for that, but one of them certainly is that interest in, in tapping into these early stage opportunities. Um, I suppose we before we move on, we should kind of consider the the VC landscape in general. Um, I know we were just chatting about this beforehand, but uh, as you say, you know, there has been a bit of a, a bit of a freeze at the moment, unsurprisingly, given what's happening in markets in general, but. I think it's fair to say that that's not going to uh, not going to turn into a big melt. That freeze is going to, you know, unthaw, and things might continue on much as they have done, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the big issues you've got now is you've had these these uh, series of fundraisings for for early stage company, which has just bid up their valuations to, in some cases, unsustainable levels. So we've now had a correction in technology stocks in the listed markets, which has been about, you know, fifty percent, call it. Um, and, and a lot more for some companies. So what do you do if you are an early stage investor uh, or an early stage company and you've seen your valuation bid up uh, considerably in the last few years? To, to take a, what's known in the trade as a down round implies either a loss of momentum, um, it can have knock-on effects for employees, many of whom are, you know, their, their wealth is entirely bound up in the, the, the liquid holding, a liquid exposure to the the shares in the company um so yeah there there is there is an element of a you know a a bit of a freeze coming to the to the that that vc market but um yeah i mean andrew andreessen horowitz one of one of the the big vc firms so you know their one of their partners made made the point a couple of years ago that each year you you're going to have they're going to be a, there's going to be a series of companies which vc Firms, if they are looking to benefit on these these huge long term uh, returns, basically have to get in front of because they are going to be break. They're going to have breakout technologies or ideas which, um, which is going to value them uh, at you know multi billion dollar um, valuations at some point. And uh, you know those companies aren't going to go away. Those opportunities aren't going to be sought after by by private money, but but the valuations for now might be bid down a little bit. Um, uh, as as some of the hot money leaves the sector, so yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess the the other thing is, you know, no matter what the concerns about, you know, the near term 
in terms of the economy, in terms of inflation, you know, all all these uh, these VCs like private equity are sitting on large piles of cash. So really, you know, the if anything, the onus to invest them is a uh, is growing even stronger given uh, the way that will be eroding nowadays. Um, speaking of fundraising, let's move on to our third segment and a. Uh, a familiar name when it comes to tapping investors for cash, Ocado, has returned once again, raising another eight five hundred and seventy-eight million, rather. Maddie, uh, welcome back to the show. Maddie covers retail for us, and uh, in fact wrote a sell uh, idea on Ocado just a uh, couple of months back. I mean, as I say, this isn't the first time Ocado has come to investors cap in hand. It does say it will be the last because it will give it enough money for the next few years and then it will be making money and, and producing cash flows to sustain itself finally. What's the kind of reaction been to, the, to this, Maddie? You know, can we believe Ocado when it, when it makes that kind of promise? You know, is this the you know, one last push or is this another sign that, that actually is you know, very difficult to, to make money in this space? Well, uh, hello. It's good to be back on the podcast. I think when it comes to Ocado, jam tomorrow is often the term that's applied to them because they've had this sort of habit in recent years of constantly coming back to equity and debt markets to raise more money to fund the next stage of growth, while at the same time sort of kicking profitability down the road a little bit. So this latest fundraise is, uh, you know, it follows up on a £500 million bond issuance last year. Prior to that, you know, in the previous year, they had raised £1 billion in debt and shares. And they'd also sold off half of their retail business in the UK uh, to M&S. So it's clear that they're really running through cash at quite an astonishing pace. Uh, and in the meantime, you know, they've only had three full year profits in their entire more than 20 year history. Uh, and none of those came in the last six years. So I think investors have some investors have started to sort of tire of this pattern, uh, which isn't really helped by Ocado's shifting their business model to be this very capex intensive um, uh, model where they're trying to build warehouses essentially for other grocery partners overseas rather than focusing on what is actually generating cash for them at the moment which is the uk retail business yeah that that overseas business you know there's been a lot of a lot of interest and excitement you know when they've signed some some deals in the past but it's still it is still making very little in terms of revenue let alone uh, bottom line as well isn't it Yes. So I think it, at the moment, it's only about 2% of sales come from that overseas section. And that is predict predicted to rise to about 16% by analysts uh, by 2027. And they are making progress there because they're constantly building lots of their warehouses. So they've got a pipeline of about 47, 48 sorry, of them at the moment that they're building for partners, including Kroger in the US, Casino Group in France, and more. And so there's definitely a potential there. But the problem with them is that they're capacity linked. And so they only start making money for Ocado really once they're fully up and running. I think, um, obviously, to most of us, you know, or certainly to, uh, if you ask the person in the street, they would say Ocado, obviously, the, the focus is very much still on the, the online groceries uh, uh, side of things. Uh, in terms of public perception, and, and you know that is obviously notoriously a very difficult place to make money. Um, I suppose at that point we should move on, perhaps to to Tesco, which also put out a trading update this week, which 
by contrast, you know, looks pretty good. Obviously, Tesco has a lot more to it than just an online offering, which uh, is to its strength, was placed to its strength rather at the moment. Um, and it's still, in fact, growing market share. I mean, uh, I think the management was saying this week they're obviously trying to pass on some costs, but they want to do so in a way that's a little bit less and a little bit later than the rest of the market. I mean, does that seem to be a winning strategy at the moment, positioning themselves between between the discounters and the rest of the market? Yes, I mean, I think when it comes to Tesco, they are in quite a good position just because they are so dominant already. You know, they're part of the they're the largest of the big four supermarkets. And so far, they have managed to keep growing uh, their total revenues, even though their like-for-like supermarket sales are down 1.5%. And they did notice that customers are more often choosing to trade down to unbranded goods rather than going for the more expensive sort of brands they might be used to. So they are they are feeling that cost of living pressure. But at the same time, I think there is some some feeling, some sentiment in the market that they might be better placed to withstand all of the cost pressures and inflation than some of their peers, partly because, you know, when you think about Asda and Morrison's, for example, um, uh, they are both uh, private equity owned and they have a lot of leverage. So they might not going forward be able to invest as much in keeping prices low. It may, may be harder for them. And then you look at other ones, other supermarkets like Waitrose and M&S and indeed Ocado that are seen very much as slightly more premium, higher end offerings. Uh, whereas Tesco, Tesco is sort of, as you say, in that middle category. You know, they're not quite the Aldi's and the Lidl's, which have been growing the market share the fastest. Uh, but at the same time, they are a trusted and very large uh, brand with a big presence in the market. I think it was interesting as well that for Tesco, you know, the the Booker uh, side of things, obviously that was an acquisition a few years back, which was quite hotly contested. But, you know, one quarter doesn't uh, make up for that. But but they did report some, some quite interesting, quite notable growth from that catering side, which sort of chimes with what we, what we saw and what we discussed in the podcast the other week with Compass Group as well. Um, Mark, uh, what are your kind of thoughts on, you know, the... the um, the impact of substitutions and, and, you know, consumer spending and how retailers and how, you know, food retailers in particular can, can manage these kind of, these changing habits, these forced changes in habits. I think looking at um, what statistics we have at this stage, it appears that, that the, um, the sort of uh, the explosion that we saw in online shopping regarding at the outset of the pandemic it's sustained in other areas better than it has uh, in grocery shopping as well. And um, it's interesting to note the reasons for this. I mean, it must be linked in some way to the fact that we, we're seeing, you know, decades record inflation in the last four decades or so. And uh, as Maddie alluded to earlier on as well, this is obviously seeing the growth in the, the German discounters too. Um, on that point about Ocado as well, it, it the food inflation that we're seeing at the moment probably couldn't come as a, a worse time for them, really, because uh, their business model isn't predicated on price savings. Uh, whereas, again, Maddie pointed out that uh, that Tesco, uh, through their their price match policy and other initiatives as well, has managed to keep in the in the hunt there in terms of uh, value for shoppers. Um, 
I wrote in, in Taking Stock a little while about uh, about this as well, that Tesco, because of their, their sheer catchment and market market reach, uh, the uh, volumes there are, aren't going to be as volatile because they can reach other parts of the UK that, uh, that Audi and um, its ilk uh, cannot as well. So I, th I think the, em the, the emphasis for consumers is obviously on, on value now uh, and really couldn't have come at a worse time for Ocado, I don't think. Yeah, unfortunately, it does seem like this might continue for a while longer. I think it was Citigroup yesterday who have revised back their expectations of when food inflation will peak to next spring. Well, yeah, I, th I think um, most of the problems that we're seeing in, in terms of the uh, shortages of uh, fertilisers and other inputs as well, that will be brought to bear really uh, in the... Uh, in the winter months of uh, 2023, it'll be it'll become obvious then just what a a large problem this is. Yeah, well, we shall see how uh, how that develops, and hopefully, it won't be too uh, too damaging. But uh, thank you, everyone, for uh, your contributions today. Uh, thank you to Alex, to Mark, to Maddie, and to Gemma, and thank you to you for listening. We will be back next week with another Companies and Markets show. Goodbye. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.